last week we were at the end of the book of John, John 21, and, and we had actually spent the last two weeks noting how John ends his gospel with a specific set of uh, descriptions for the purpose of why he wrote his gospel. And he said specifically, these things were written so that you may believe, and believing you may have life in his name. So the, the purpose that John explains uh, his gospel uh, as having is that to, to affect faith in his hearers or readers in such a way that they believe the truth about what is said in the gospel, and then from there begin to uh, respond in faith to its claims. One of the, the ways that we're celebrating Easter this year is by moving, we've moved through the book of John after the resurrection. We looked at John 20, John 21, celebrated that in Easter and the first week of Easter. Today is now the second week of Easter, and the book of John has ended, so we need to move somewhere else. We've decided to move to Matthew 28, as Larry just read, and Matthew 28 presents the resurrection in slightly uh, different ways than, than John does, Many Christians have never examined them or even given any sort of consideration to how the Gospels are different. That will be uh, kind of the, the purpose of this talk. In, uh, pr- the purpose of this sermon is to illustrate the, the differences in the Gospels as they're r- written and recorded by the Gospel writers do not destroy the faith. In fact, there's very good reason why they actually undergird the faith and support it. So we're going to look at Matthew 28 in these four ways. As I mentioned, the gospel differences and what they mean to us as Christians, how we are to interpret the differences in the gospels, uh, unifying where possible and otherwise giving uh, possible reasons for the differences, but then also noting that the differences are actually, instead of a deficit or, or a, sorry, a debit, uh, the, defic- uh, the, the differences are actually a credit they actually help give uh, sustenance and, and um, credibility to the Gospels. We're going to look at the resurrection itself, as Matthew uh, records in his Gospel. We're going to look at the conspiracy theory that the Jews begin to promote and how that, is, um, how that demonstrates one of the final uh, effects of the, the end of the Jews, that is, the end, the end result in this story that they come to. If you remember, we've been looking throughout this time in both Lent all the way up to Easter as we've been going through the book of John, we've been looking at how Jesus is counteracting blindness and darkness, bringing light where where there is blindness, and yet those who say that they see remain in their blindness. Uh, That comes to a uh, culmination both in John, but also it's echoed here in the Gospel of Matthew the Holy Spirit being the wonderful master composer through which uh, the gospel writers compose their accounts. And then finally, we're going to look at the Great Commission as being an idea, a thing, a way of life based on, uh, started by, built on the idea that Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead. So often, it's, it's my feeling that we hear the Great Commission, it's one of the most quoted phrases out of the New Testament, uh, you know, all authority go therefore. Uh, that is one of the most quoted phrases in the New Testament, possibly, you know, in the top five, maybe at least in church behind 
you know, John 3.16 and, and other touchstones of the scriptures. But it's my feeling that sometimes the Great Commission is completely divorced from the setting of the resurrection. And so that's what we're going to uh, refocus on today. So um, Matthew's gospel presents some really interesting aspects of the resurrection that we haven't yet touched on or seen. And again, we looked at in John how Jesus arrives at, you know, the resurrection takes place on the first day of the week. And then last week we looked at how he appeared to them in the room on the first day of the week. Matthew, instead of saying the, the who, the what, and then the when, Matthew begins with the when. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Now, that's very interesting if you look at most scriptural accounts because they usually belong, begin with um, you know, a pattern of, if they're chronicles, like the book of First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles, they'll begin with in the year of, or in the, in the first year of the reign of Darius, or something like that. Matthew is, is living in that tradition. He's considering himself, uh, in terms of the, the gospel that he's writing, as being a, uh, a chronicler, or, or someone who's composing a narrative, not someone who is writing a literal history. And what I mean by that is, notice it doesn't say at all any description about Mary Magdalene or the other Mary, what they're wearing. It just says that they're there. So of necessity, Matthew isn't covering every single detail, but the details that are left out do not begin to bring in error or falsehood, uh, but rather we just can see only a few things here. So Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and at this point, we notice the first difference. Matthew records the gospel uh, differently. He records the resurrection events slightly differently than John, and in Matthew's gospel, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are present, whereas, as we saw at Easter, in John's gospel, only Mary Magdalene is present. The other Mary isn't even mentioned. And so, what are we to say about this? <clears throat> Who's right? Is John right or is Matthew right? Was Mary Magdalene there with the other Mary, or was it just Mary Magdalene herself? If you have no basis for dealing with this kind of problem in the gospel, you may be shaken. Is this proof that the Gospels are completely wrong? Is this proof that, the, um, <clears throat> that the, the Gospels and the Bible are full of falsehood and lies? I hope you wouldn't imagine that such a thing is true, but it's very, it's very often the case that um, some people, especially the so-called new militant atheists, they will use these sorts of tactics to attempt to convince you that you don't understand your own scriptures. Do we need to abandon the faith, might be asked. Absolutely not, uh, but here's why. Here, here are three different reasons why the Gospels, although they have differences, we're going to examine why they have the differences, two of which, uh, two of these ideas, I believe, help us understand why the differences aren't that big of a problem. And then one, which actually helps to explain what the differences uh, are there to do, what, what the differences confirm to us. Um, so this is a little more academic than a typical uh, sermon, I, you know, but it's helpful. I think this, these things are the bedrock of faith that you can uh, uh, apply in your heart to 
build a structure upon, right? Paul says that there is no other foundation other than Christ. What is the thing that tells us about Christ's resurrection? The scriptures and the living witness through the church. And so if the scriptures are to be found as having error, what are we to do? I think that they do not have error. They are inerrant in their original texts and manuscripts. And, and by understanding these things, you can provide an anchor for your heart that no storm will uh, move. So first, the gospel writers, uh, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, they synthesize complex events into concise textual descriptions. Now, what does that mean? Okay, uh, most people, there's either authentic or synthetic, uh, as in something's real or natural, like it's, it's very good, ask Carla, it's very good to eat natural foods instead of synthetic foods. Uh, some people who work on engines claim, and I'm not an engine guy, uh, they claim that natural occurring oils are better than synthetic oils. I don't know if that's true, but there's a difference between authentic things and synthetic things. And the word synthetic is, uh, it's a word that just means to reduce or to synthesize. If you've ever had uh, um, condensed milk, it has been, it's milk that started out as, you know, regular whole milk that came out of a cow or many cows these days, hundreds of cows being combined together into a set of milk, and then they condense it by uh, heating it and letting it dehydrate, and then you have condensed milk, and you can make delicious uh, coffees or pies. It's synthesized, right? Same thing with... Uh, you know, running a reduction on maple sugar or maple, maple syrup. Uh, the sap from hundreds of trees is boiled down over hours and days into a small golden jug of pure joy and happiness called real maple syrup. If you've, ever, if you've never had real maple syrup and you've only had Aunt Jemima and uh, Mrs. Buttersworth and Hungry Jack, I really recommend trying real maple syrup. It's better. Uh, but anyway... What happens on maple syrup or maple, the sap that comes out of maple trees is a synthesis. Not all of the mass is left over after the process. That's what the disciples or what the gospel writers are doing. They're taking huge complex events and they are running a synthesis on those events in such a way to provide a textual or, or a composed of words description of the events that happened. Now, if I took a picture of John Gray uh, that would be, you know, I'd have some image data with, in computers, it would be pixels in a camera, there would be photons hitting a film, and then I would have a representation of John Gray. But if I were to write a handwritten description of John Gray, it wouldn't necessarily include all the features that a photograph would include. I would miss some detail, you know. Uh, in, in eyewitness accounts, they always, you always are going to lose some precision. Now, my point is that the details by necessity get left out. The Gospels are written on parchment or papyrus, um, and, and that medium uh, cannot contain massive amounts of information. It just can't. Uh, today, I now can have a microchip the size of my finger that can hold a movie, right? Or dozens of movies on a little, you know, micro SD card. But back then, you're writing with ink on papyrus, and you don't have the economy of uh, producing a tome of thousands and thousands of pages 
for a span of three years of history. So in the economy of scripture, what someone has for breakfast isn't as important as that someone being raised from the dead. Lazarus probably ate a meal after he got raised from the dead, but the gospel writers don't tell us that. And they also don't say what he was wearing afterwards or what the current fashions of the day or, you know, which merchant bought someone else out and, you know, who was establishing uh, social empires throughout Israel at the time. Uh, There's whole realms of society that are left out by the gospel writers because they're concerned with certain things. So first, we have to realize that the Holy Spirit is guiding the gospel writers to take real events and to record the essential descriptions of what actually took place. Second thing that we must understand is that the gospel writers are weaving together eyewitness accounts. If, if you don't understand this, Luke was not one of the apostles, okay? Luke is a physician who was uh, evangelized in the first few years of the church, and Luke went around like a master uh, physician. Uh, he was a great doctor. He had learning. He was a wise guy. He wasn't just some uh, any old you know, merchant or, or tradesman, he was a man of, of education and learning. And so he uses his education to go around and investigate and interview disciples, probably the apostles themselves, as well as other people who had followed Christ uh, throughout his earthly ministry. And from that, he paints a composite picture, which becomes the Gospel of Luke. Now, The gospel writers, not just Luke, combine these eyewitness accounts into a historical narrative, as in a story that is historical or authentic. Uh, As they do, they often provide prophetic or poetic interpretation and commentary. If you notice over and over again, when we've been reading in the book of John throughout Lent and Easter, John will say things like, this was done to fulfill the prophecy, or, and the disciples did not yet know this because Christ had not yet risen. If you see those, that's kind of like um, in film, they have a term called breaking the wall or breaking the fourth wall, both in film and stage. On stage, there's stage left, stage right, and stage back. Same with on camera. And whenever uh, someone in the uh, play uh, directly addresses the audience, it's called breaking the wall because there's kind of seemingly an invisible wall in the play, which all of the crowd is just casual observers of a reenactment of a story, like a Macbeth or a Hamlet or any of the other, you know, plays that you might see, or even Broadway. And every once in a while in the story, Shakespeare will have one of his, um, one of his characters, like, kind of break the scene and then start directly addressing the, the crowd in a monologue. And then it'll kind of just pick, and everybody on the stage, other than the person addressing the crowd, basically holds position. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like in TV, you might see in a sitcom, they're going through their story, and then all of once in a while, every once in a while, they'll, they'll directly turn to the camera, square on, and do a product placement in an ironic fashion, that's called breaking the wall. Well, John, in his gospel, he does that because here he is writing a a historical narrative, but then it then says, you know, the story just gets interrupted. It's like pausing the tape, and then John interjects an opinion or a, a small commentary on the situation that's going on at the time. And so you have to understand that the historical narrative has these interpretations and commentary where possible. And in weaving these eyewitness accounts, the writers have to highlight or diminish particular opinions or uh, records of, of what happened. 
So it's just, you can't, you know, if somebody says uh, that, you know, we went to the baseball game and then they hit a homer and I got a hot dog and somebody else tells you the same story but forgot that that one guy got a hot dog, you have to choose which, whether you include the hot dog or not, um, and what do you do? Well, thank, thankfully, to, to our benefit, the Holy Spirit has helped the gospel writers when they were composing their gospels in such a way as no essential information was synthesized out, if that makes sense. By saying historical narrative, we do not reduce the scriptures into stories or fables. Some people, when especially those who are doing academic, cultural, or textual criticism on whether it's the scriptures themselves or scriptures of other faiths, such as you know the Baha'i texts or you know the Quran, they will reduce those writings into the realm of myth and fable. And by by as Christians, when we assert that the scriptures are historical narratives, we mean authentic recordings of events written in a narrative form. And we do not mean at all that it is false or a fable. And in no way does the omission of certain portions of the account lead to the rest of the account being wrong. Like we were describing, I could verbally or writ or by uh, writing, I could give you a description of another person, but it would by necessity lose information uh, that even a picture would probably present. Flip side, if, you gave, if I gave you a picture of any person in this church, you could not show that to a stranger and by uh, that picture alone know their character, name, voice, personality, likes, dislikes, preferences, etc. And so the, the writers present a textual view of these events. Now these first two ideas that we saw, the, the synthesis and here the, the narrative weaving with commentary, those help us understand that the so-called differences in the Gospels are not differences that are uh, substantial or would, would substantiate any claims that the Gospels themselves are full of error. Those two are defensive, the third is offensive. Thirdly, the Gospel writers in composing the accounts, which contain variation and different information, indicate strongly that there was no collusion. What does collusion mean? It means working together behind the scenes to get all of the stories straight. I have been to the principal's office many times in grade school, especially with uh, compatriots, uh, comrades in, in my dealings and, and mischief. And it, was, it, it is a near universal principle that before you go into the principal's office, you get your story straight with your buddies. You say, no, we weren't uh, you know, spray painting the building, we were actually just covering up other people's graffiti or whatever. And so you get your story straight before you go into the principal's office because you don't want, to, you don't want the lie to be found out, right? You're getting your story straight because you're modifying the truth and everyone needs to be on the same page or a good detective will see the difference in the stories and know that something's not right. By the gospel writers composing different accounts with different information, they indicate that there was no collusion. There was no conference on the gospel writers in you know, 36 BC or 42 BC, whenever they wrote them. Uh, there was no conference where they all got together and said, okay, well, you know, these are the stories we're all going to cover, and uh, you make sure not to include that one deep. Oh, darn, you already wrote part of your gospel. You need to scratch that out, etc." Each author 
produces a work that was unique to them, escaping the accusation of plagiarism and secret collaboration. That is vitally important for you to understand as someone who is going into a world where people are, there are no qualms about open militant atheism that badmouths and blasphemes the scripture. And so if, if you understand this as a benefit, uh, the fact that, that the gospel writers include embarrassing stories about themselves as uh, along with this idea is strong evidence that the documents themselves are trustworthy. In the end, the gospels are trustworthy because where they have differences, none of the differences are disagreements or contractions. One of the many uh, you know, accusations is that the gospels have different information, but what's never then said is that none of those different facts ever produce any sort of material contradiction. For example, we looked at, at this first verse. I know we've, we, we're kind of, we've been in here for 10 or 15 minutes just on one verse of a difference, but it's the first time we've really had to deal with this in, in our celebration of Easter. And so while John does not include the other Mary being at the tomb, that doesn't mean that John is wrong. It just means that he's omitting the fact that Mary was there. Now, in that way, um, we have faith in the Gospels that they are historically accurate, as well as inerrant and contain no contradictions. And from that foundation, we can begin to unify the Gospels. If you attempt to resolve the differences in the Gospels with any other foundation, you, your Gospels will diverge and, there, and the claim of inerrancy will fall apart. So that being said, we're going to jump back in. Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, they're, account, they're encountered by an angel. Um, as we've been looking in the Gospel of John, and as we'll see in the Ascension, and then after the Ascension, the heavenly things that, are, uh, show, that show up on the earth. Matthew 28, 2 through 3. And behold, there was an, a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. We see again here the fiery nature of the heavenly things. The angel that descends from heaven is identified as looking like lightning. Have you ever imagined a being that looks like lightning? They're pure white, they're glowy, they're very bright, they're hard to look at. Uh, you probably need one of those visors with the cobalt glass so that your eyes don't burn out. Um, he, he descends from heaven, he looks like lightning and has white clothing. This is a radiant, glorious being. It's important for us to build this, this description of what the heavenly things look like because we're going to see it show up after the ascension. So the angel is glorious, and as, his, as he is glorious, he commands a mighty, mighty presence. It says, in verse 4, And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. The men who guard the tomb, they fall down as if dead. And this is indicating that, that Matthew, in recording the historical event that took place, is directly saying that this angel who appears and causes the guards to fall down is the same action of the same God who time and again causes angels to come and prophets to fall face down. In this situation, uh, as along with the filling of, the, of Solomon's temple when the ministers could not stand. And so this uh, picture of someone who falls face down at, at a radiant heavenly being will show up again, as I've mentioned, at the ascension in John's uh, account of Revelation 1. 
The women are told not to be afraid. Thank God they were told not to be afraid. If people are falling as if they were dead, um, I don't know about you. I, I don't know if you've ever fainted. I think I fainted once in my life. And if I saw a being that was on fire and looked like lightning with white clothing uh, and a bunch of other guys had just fallen on the ground, I'd be very scared. So um, the women are told to, to take faith and to not be afraid. And after this, then uh, the angel arrives and finds them, uh, sorry, Jesus arrives and finds them exactly like the book of John uh, or the gospel of John. Verse nine, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took a hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Again, we see complete gospel unity with the gospel of John. Immediately, though, after these things happen, so after, after the disciples leave, uh, um, after Mary and, and the other Mary, they depart. Some of the guys who fell down like dead, they uh, apparently get up. They weren't killed. They were just stunned. And um, they go on and report to the chief priests what's going on. And immediately... When these people, the children of the devil, when they hear that God has raised Jesus from the dead, they begin to bribe, lie, and blaspheme. Now, I don't use that phrase lightly. Jesus himself calls the Pharisees the children of their father, the devil, because he's a liar from the beginning. And they love to do what the father of lies, their father, always does. And this is what they respond to the truth with. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Okay, just to be clear, this is called a bribe. And said, tell people, now, now they're colluding, right? This is tampering with the witness. This is in every society, in every judicial system. If this is discovered that you've been doing this in the, in the beginning of a proceedings, uh, this is called tampering with evidence or misleading a witness and is uh, in contempt of court and most often is actually a felony style charge. Whether, you know, maybe your judicial system doesn't have felonies, but this is a felony. They are telling after giving money to the, the guards, they are then telling them, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. At this point, we see a, a very wretched end. They turn the soldiers into liars, and not only do the Jews conspire to bribe the soldiers, but they're getting their funding in order to be able to take care of the governor. Look at the next verses. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Now, it's um, just to provide a little historical context for what they're saying. If you are a guard, whether in uh, the Roman army or even really any army, if you are a guard and it is your job to watch and you fall asleep on your duty, then you will be killed. Or in America, you will probably just be court-martialed and dishonorably discharged and you will have to explain to people why you were dishonorably discharged. Now, what they're saying here is that they're telling the soldiers, we're gonna give you, you know, X amount of dollars, X amount of gold coins to say that you fell asleep. And this is going directly against the code of honor that these soldiers have, as well as the established practice in their army training. 
So this must have been, I'm just going out on a limb here, this must have been considerable amounts of money. Uh, think about the amount of money that is taken, uh, that, that's required to bribe a soldier to, to claiming to have let his guard down when his job is to be a guard. If it comes to the governor's ears, the, the guy who's in charge of the army, uh, he's going to put these soldiers to death. But what they're saying is, we will satisfy the governor. Another phrase is grease palms. He, they're going to pay off not just the, the, the prisoner or the soldiers, but also the governors. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the, to the Jews this day. Remember how I said earlier, we've been seeing in John that the Jews are those who claim to see, but because they claim to see, they still remain blind. Well, the Jews who hated Christ from, for breaking the Sabbath, they themselves are breaking the law and causing others to do the same, for it is against the law to take a bribe. Exodus 23, 8, And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. By knowing the Old Testament, the actual story, the conspiracy theory that the disciples got together, that, that story, which was promulgated by the Jews uh, through the, the soldiers, that story actually provides evidence for the authenticity of the disciples' claims that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. The Jews who are blind are spreading their blindness to the soldiers, if we interpret Exodus 23 right. And by extension, their bribe actually verifies and validates the truth of the soldier's initial testimony, the resurrection of Jesus. Let's look at it again. Exodus 23, 8, don't miss it. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted. Okay, what happens if the blind lead the blind? They both fall into the pit. The Jews here are subverting the truth, causing the actual witnesses of uh, what took place. The guys who said, we saw this big flash, and then we were out, and then afterwards, this giant stone was moved, and the guy whose tomb we were guarding, he was gone. Uh, so I think something heavenly happened. Those who were clear-sighted are now blind. And by implication of Exodus, the disciples are those who were bribed against. They are those who are in the right they hear the witness, uh, the, the Jews hear the witness of God's power, and rather than repent, they break the law of God and attempt to lead all of Israel astray. They do so successfully. What a sad story and sad end for the leaders of Israel, and yet this is not the final word in the chapter. So, moving on to the great, uh, the great commission. Uh, the disciples at this point go to Galilee, they follow Jesus' words, and um, they go up to the mountain which Jesus has directed them, and when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, at this point, we begin to see the close of Matthew's gospel. Matthew is setting the stage for uh, a, a, a mysterious and magnificent event, Jesus Christ giving the new direction to the new people of God. Going up to a mountain here in this passage, it's indicative poetically of a great new direction from heaven. Over and over again, when Israel needs uh, direction from, from God, there's events that take place. The, the patriarchs, they go and establish um, altars on mountains. Uh, then at another time, uh, Moses himself goes up to a mountain. God calls him up to that mountain, and he goes up. And when, when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, he took the elders and encountered Yahweh in power. After a period of 40 days, Moses then receives the law, 
and then brings it down and gives it to the people of God, which is a direction for how they are supposed to enter the land and live in that land. Okay? So setting the stage here, by extension, Jesus Christ, by taking the, his disciples, uh, a corollary to the elders in the previous case, he brings them up to the mountain and gives them what is a new foundation for uh, the law of Christ. That is, that all authority has been given to Jesus. And Jesus, Matthew 28, 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now that right there, if you just put a period there and did not move on to the next verse right away, this is the foundation for God's new people to enter the land and live with. This is the new basis. In the old, in the old system with Moses, Moses basically was told by God, I took you out of a place and it's by my power that I've pulled you out of Egypt and now you are to go. Jesus here is saying, I have now all power, all authority in both heaven and earth. There is no authority other than Christ. Uh, many Christians who believe in the overwhelmingly large effect of spiritual warfare miss this idea that for those who are under Christ, nothing actually can touch them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he doesn't say some authority. He doesn't say regional authority over Jerusalem. He doesn't say authority in this time. He says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. With that in mind, with that as the basis, the disciples are ready to enter the land. Jesus Christ then sends them in saying, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, many people believe that the baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is code for how we are to do water baptism. I think Jesus is more trying to say that the, the ministry that the apostles are to have in bringing the mission to the, the people that they're discipling is to bring those people into the life of a Trinitarian uh, humanity. That is a life that is filled with the understanding of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I still baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but to reduce it to just a formula for water baptism is to miss the point. Jesus is telling his disciples to go into the world, make disciples of every nation, and bring them into a, a true worship of God, bringing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He then goes on to say, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's fitting that we do this on May 4th. Um, whenever I hear, so there's a few things that you can do in life uh, with calendars that I think are cute. Um, every 21st of September, I have my Google Calendar alert me to go listen to that wonderful song by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Because they mention in that song, uh, in September, they mentioned that the phrase, do you remember the 21st night of September? So every 21st of September, uh, my Google Calendar tells me to go and listen to that song. Likewise, today is, is what is internationally recognized as Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you, right? So I just, I need to admit, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a man and I have problems. And every time I hear Jesus say, and behold, or in the King James, and lo, I will be with you always. I always hear it in the voice of Ben Kenobi when he says to Luke, the force will be with you always, every single time. 
I would challenge you that Ben Kenobi is a wimp compared to Jesus Christ. And that when Jesus Christ says, lo or behold, take notice, change all of your thinking based on what I'm about to tell you, reorient the way you uh, live your life, behold, observe, meditate on, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus is saying to the disciples, uh, reorient your thinking. When, when um, in, the, in the creeds we say, I believe in God the Father, I believe in his Son, etc., etc., it, it is vital for us as Christians to go beyond believing facts and beholding realities. When Jesus says in the, in, in the Gospels over and over again, behold, or verily, verily, I tell you the truth, or be, instead of, you know, do not doubt but believe, etc., what, what he's inviting us to do in those moments is to revisit and to experience through his spirit, through the Holy Spirit, making alive to us these facts, these events. He's, he's inviting us into a time period to reorient our opinion on things. By Jesus saying at the end of, the, of the, uh, this three-verse couplet, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, he is forming a uh, what you might call bookends. The disciples are to make disciples, and in the great words of Lecrae, there will be disciple cycles. Uh, the disciples are to make disciples, disciple cycles, and they're to bring people, these disciples, these nations, families, people groups, they're to bring them into a Trinitarian life, submitting them to the law of Christ. Jesus says, tell them to observe all that I commanded you. The declaration of authority and the reminder of Jesus' continued presence, that is verse 20, uh, the last half of it, they, it serves as kind of bookends for the mission. Um, we've been looking at chiastic structures over and over again. I hope that you're beginning to, as you read your, your, the word, you're beginning to see these. If you don't remember chiastic structures, just remember uh, bookends. You've got books on the shelf and bookends, which help the books from falling over. Another way, a more tasty image, is to think of a hamburger. You've got a bun, and then you've got a burger, the, the meat, and then you've got another bun, and that holds the, the thing together. Uh, in this way, the chiastic structure is kind of cementing. Jesus is intentionally cementing this idea. We are supposed to go knowing that he has all authority in heaven and on earth and that he is with us, right? Those two ideas being married together give us great satisfaction and power. And the reason and the power of the mission that Jesus gives his disciples to do, it's to be done on the foundation of the resurrected Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and earth and is here. Those two ideas being joined together produce faith in the believer such that you do not doubt whether or not Jesus has sent you on mission in the middle of your mission. It's vitally important to see both buns on this hamburger. He's got all authority in heaven and earth, and though he's ascended, he is here by his spirit. And with those two ideas, we can celebrate Easter well. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask that you would give us a, uh, a mind to apprehend, to make these truths relevant to our hearts, that we ask, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us concerning the celebration of Easter, the reminder that you have defeated death and that it could not hold you down and that it, it did not win, but you won 
after that appearing to your disciples over a period of 40 days before ascending. Lord, in our remembrance of these times where you visit with your disciples, Lord, we ask that you would cause us to see you by faith, that through the aid of your spirit, you would cause us to experience these times of of wonderful mercy on your part, where you show yourself to disciples who are afraid and who are doubting, that you would show us, Lord, yourself again today as we partake of your body and your blood. Lord, we ask that you would fill our hearts with faith, cause us to transform the world around us and fulfill the Great Commission, discipling our neighbors, our friends, our family. And Lord, help us to remember those two vital truths, that you have all authority in heaven and earth and that you are here. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.